Okay, today I'm going to talk about the Noble Eightfold Path. I think you all are familiar with all of that. The slides that I just showed you, they're all clear enough, right? There's only one thing that may seem unclear to you when I talk about two types of results. There's the passive and active or karmic results. The results in the sense of cost condition result. I'll give you an example of a passive sort of result. Then you go to the dining hall to get your meal. You see the dishes laid out on the table. Then the moment your eye comes into contact with a particular dish that could trigger off a memory of your childhood days when you enjoyed the dish together with your parents. So the cause is because you see the dish and the condition is because of your past experience. These two will give rise to a result. And that result is a memory. That result is a memory. It could be accompanied by pleasant feelings. So that memory, that first occurrence of that memory, is a passive result. And then, if you try to indulge in that memory, try to think more about it, recall those good old days when you were with your parents, enjoying that food, that becomes karmic. Spontaneous arising of memories, for example, perceptions, these are all non-karmic, these are passive results. But once you start to pursue those initial arising with sankharas, then it becomes active. Okay, you get it? So now we come to the noble evil path. You're all familiar with all of that, the eight path factors. Now let's start off with right view. Okay, so we have all these factors of the noble evil path. The first one is right view. And I already talked to you about right view as a belief in causality. And there are a few types of causality that I talked about. The physical law of cause and effect, the moral law of cause and effect, the mind-body law of cause and effect. One more is the law of cause and effect expressed in the Four Noble Truths. So the first part of right view is more intellectual. You learn about all these things, you hear Dhamma talks, you read about them, and then you believe in them. The next thing is to personally verify through practice. And as I said, out of these four types of causality, the first two are beyond the reach of most Buddhists. The last two, the mind-body law of cause and effect, and the law of cause and effect expressed in the Four Noble Truths can be personally verified. So right view starts off with something intellectual and it ends up with something experiential. So here we're talking about understanding the Four Noble Truths. Again, initially it's just understanding in terms of intellectual understanding. We all know that the Four Noble Truths here mean that there is suffering and there can be a cause of suffering then there can be a succession of suffering and the way leading to the succession of suffering. The Buddha said in his first sermon, 
the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, that the first truth of suffering is to be fully comprehended. I talked briefly about three types of suffering last night. Dukkha Dukkha, Viparinama Dukkha and Sankhara Dukkha. Dukkha Dukkha is painful suffering. Viparinama Dukkha is actually a name for Sukha. And it has the potential for Dukkha, for suffering if you cling on to the happiness or the pleasure. So Viparinama Dukkha can be translated as transformative suffering. It's actually happiness or pleasantness at the beginning, but suffering is inherent in it if it is experienced with attachment and clinging. Otherwise, it is not. For example, if you are not awakened and you enjoy very delicious dish, you do so with attachment and clinging. But an arahant would similarly enjoy that delicious dish without attachment or clinging. So, for you, because you enjoy it with attachment and clinging, that thing has dukkha or suffering inherent in it. Because next time when you cannot get it or you think about it, then you feel unpleasant. For the arahant, there's no suffering inherent in that. The third type of suffering is Sankara Dukkha. This is the suffering of incessant change. It is oppression by constant arising and passing away. This is the inherent suffering. This is the suffering that is inherent in all conditioned phenomena, in all constructions, everything that is a product of causes and conditions, because causes and conditions change all the time, and they will also change. And there's no way you can stop them. That's why it's suffering. So that sort of suffering is not easy to experience unless you are very continuous in your mindfulness and you try to keep track of what's happening at the six senses. If you just do focus awareness, focusing on your breath or you just chant a particular mantra and then you get peace and quiet, you cannot see that because you don't see things arising and passing away. You are locked into a constant state of peace and serenity. So the Buddha says that suffering is to be fully comprehended. So all sorts of suffering, dukkha dukkha or viparinama dukkha, transformative suffering, and particularly sankhara dukkha. So when you encounter suffering, most people when they encounter physical suffering or emotional suffering, the first type of suffering, painful suffering, they tend to avoid it. If you avoid suffering, then you miss the chance of understanding what it is. Fully comprehending suffering means understanding how it feels like to suffer physically, mentally, emotionally. That's part of the understanding. Another level of understanding is understanding the cause of the suffering. The cause of suffering is tanha, 
craving, clinging, attachment, desire, wanting. So when you experience suffering, whenever you feel disappointed, upset, dissatisfied, whenever you're complaining and so forth, whenever you feel unpleasantness in your mind, that's a very good opportunity for you to understand fully that suffering. Understanding in terms of experiencing it as well as understanding its cause. So this itself is a very potent and efficacious sort of meditation. Every time you are angry, you are upset, you are dissatisfied, ask yourself why. So if your mind is composed, if you have been trained your mind to come back to the present moment as often as you can, being aware of the senses, as often as you can throughout your daily life, you would have achieved this dynamic serenity, dynamic composure. And because your mind is in a state of dynamic composure, when you just incline your mind to see suffering and understand its cause, you will see very clearly. Sometimes people say, I know the cause of my suffering is attachment, but I cannot let go of it because you haven't suffered enough. See more, suffer more. Every time you suffer, look at the cause. So one fine day, it will dawn upon you. You see until one fine day, it will dawn upon you. Why am I so stupid? If I just let go of that attachment, it's finished. No more suffering. So that's why the cause of suffering, which is tanha, craving, attachment, desire, wanting, is to be abandoned. Once you abandon it, then what happens? Then you will get cessation of suffering. That's why the cessation of suffering is to be realized. So the moment you actually understand, truly and fully understand your suffering, at that very moment, you actually abandon the cause of suffering. Because you know, this suffering is caused by attachment. The moment you abandon attachment, what happens? There is cessation. This occurs simultaneously. But in order to get there, you have to develop the Noble Eiffel Path. When the Noble Eiffel Path has been fully developed and you achieve that state of being able to understand fully the suffering that you're experiencing, then you will result in the cessation of suffering by abandoning its cause. So this works in the ultimate sense, in the sense of attaining Nibbana, being liberated from samsara. It can also apply at a lower end to any particular suffering that you have. You are attached to a particular thing and because of that attachment you suffer. You have attached to an idea of how things should be done and if somebody doesn't do it the way you expect them to, there's going to be suffering, disappointment, anger. You feel upset. Why? Because it's caused by hanging on or clinging to an idea, an expectation. So this happens so often in your lives. The opportunity is there for you to watch in your daily lives. The most important thing is that you must have dynamic composure. Then when your mind looks at all these things, you will truly understand deeply. Not just intellectually. Intellectual understanding will not bring you out of suffering. It has to be experiential, insightful understanding seen with a composed mind. Then let's go on to the next one, which is right thought. 
right thought is defined as the thoughts of renouncing sense pleasures. Usually this is translated as renunciation. And when people see the word renunciation, you think becoming a monk or a nun. But it's not necessarily so. Monks and nuns also, if they have not renounced sense pleasures, they are only symbols of renunciation because of their lifestyle, of what they wear, their appearance. But then, if they have not actually renounced sense pleasures, they can still go after good food, they can still watch video, they can still do a lot of things that worldly people do. So when you are on retreat, and eight precepts, and then you don't have any access to your devices, no entertainment, then that is actually renouncing sense pleasures. And then when you go to the dining hall, you see that peanut crispy, <laughs> and then you know you go through the bar test, number one doesn't pass really, and you go through the last one, you see it's still the cost and condition, but still you take. That is not renouncing sense pleasures. <laughs> that is indulging in sense pleasure. So even if you are a yogi, it's so difficult. So imagine you go back to the world. Huh? <laughs> you are bombarded with all these sense pleasures and sense objects. How difficult it would be to have this right thought of renouncing sense pleasures. The second is thoughts of non-ill will. Non-ill will here means you don't get angry with people. You don't get angry with yourself. If you're angry with yourself, that's also ill will. If you get angry with others, it's definitely ill will. And non-cruelty means not just angry, but you punish yourself. For example, this one is like self-mortification. Some yogis, they have misestimated the collection of food the day before. So in the night, they feel very hungry. So today they say, I must take a bit more so that I won't feel hungry at night. So they took a bit more than what they estimated. So in the end, they feel full already, but still got some more left. Then they say, yeah, I must punish myself for this. <laughs> Angry at yourself for overestimating your food. And then you feel also very embarrassed if people see you throw away food. After all, food is donated, and then it's offered, it's sponsored. And then you saw all the past conditioning, your parents tell you, you cannot waste food, anything is on your plate, you must finish. So they are already full, they know that if they eat more, they are going to suffer, but still they eat. <laughs> this is cruelty to yourself, because you are attached to all these values. What to do, you know, if you misestimate, nobody can be perfectly accurate. So even that sort of thing is sort of cruelty. <laughs> So you must practice non-cruelty, have wisdom, know when to let go of past conditioning. That's why you need to see cause and condition. If you don't see cause and condition, you become a slave of your conditioning without understanding why we are doing this. Now the opposite of these things is non-ill will means you have loving kindness instead. And non-cruelty means you have compassion. If you go to the toilet, and then the toilet bowl is full of insects because somebody switched on the lights and didn't switch off the lights. And the insects are inside the toilet bowl or in a sink. And then you look at them and then you say, oh, yo, so many insects, better don't use this one, go to the next one. And use the other one, don't have insects. So there's no compassion. You keep your precepts, but no compassion. 
you should actually save all those insects, take them out from the toilet bowl, and then use that one, rather than just going on to the next one. So right speech is not lying, not telling lies, refraining from divisive speech. Divisive speech is saying things that may be true or untrue in order to divide people who are in harmony. If you say something that is untrue, you actually commit two offenses. One is lying and the other one is divisive speech in order to divide people. The next one is refraining from harsh speech. Harsh speech is usually understood as abusive language, cursing people or swearing at people. Sometimes you even swear at yourself for being unmindful. You trip over something and then you get angry and then you kick the thing because you trip over it. <laughs> that is cruelty to yourself. Uh, harsh speech also, some people just swear, you know, when they encounter things that they don't expect. Uh, due to their own mistake or unmindfulness or forgetfulness. But it is not limited to just swearing and abusive language. If you want to look at it more finely, it refers to any sort of speech that can hurt another person. So it could be something very sarcastic. It's sweet outside, but actually it's very sarcastic. That is also harsh speech. In fact, whatever you say with the evil intent, of wanting to hurt somebody, no matter how well or sweetly you phrase it. That is harsh speech. Then the next one is refraining from useless talk. This is very difficult, you know, when you go back to the world, sometimes you just chat and gossip, no apparent benefit, whether in the worldly or spiritual sense. But you just get fun doing that. So this is also not walking the noble footpath. Now we talk about right action, which is quite obvious, of refraining from taking life, taking what is not given, and refraining from committing sexual misconduct. This is right livelihood. It's not very well defined in the suttas, where they talk about the noble path. They just say that here a noble disciple refrains from wrong livelihood and undertakes or engages in right livelihood. And he never tells us what is wrong livelihood and what is right livelihood. So you cannot get much from such a definition. So if you look at other suttas, we find that right livelihood means something that is ethical. Whatever you do as a livelihood should not cause you to break your precepts. And it should not be harmful to other people. You may not break your precepts, but then whatever you are engaging in could be harmful to others. Right effort, I already talked about it yesterday, or the day before, is a desire or effort to abandon arisen unskillful states, and a desire or effort to prevent unarisen unskillful states from arising. And the second pair is a desire or effort to arouse unarisen skillful states, and secondly, to maintain and develop arisen skillful states. In relation to this, there's one thing that I want to share with you about using right effort when you encounter remorse. Is remorse good or bad? Remorse or regret 
is accompanied by displeasure in the mind, isn't it? You regret having done something and you're remorseful. So if you dwell in it, that's even causing more unwholesomeness because whatever displeasure you have in the mind shows that there is anger involved. Anger is dosa. So instead of dwelling on remorse, you should make good use of remorse. Remorse is good in the sense that if you have right view, it is good in the sense that you admit, acknowledge that you have done something wrong. And after you have acknowledged that, you should not just dwell upon it and feel bad about it. You should do something proactive. So you should redress or redeem yourself. Go say sorry to somebody whom you have scandalized or accused without grounds or somebody you have offended. In other ways, you could buy her or him a present or things like that. Do something to redress yourself. And then you should also resolve. You resolve that next time you are faced with similar circumstances, I will not do it again. And finally, the last one is to refrain. When actually you do encounter similar circumstances in future, you actually refrain. So these are the four hours of regret. These four hours of regret also incorporates right effort. Because you know that remorse, displeasure in the mind is something unwholesome. So it has already arisen, you should abandon it. And then after you abandon it, you should replace it with wholesome states. So I have a Dhamma rhyme for that. Have I given you before? No? Dwell not in remorse, but redeem and resolve. Then refrain the next time round. Four hours of regret with right effort. Dwell not in remorse, but redeem and resolve. Then refrain the next time round. Four hours of regret. With right effort, dwell not in remorse, but redeem and resolve. Then refrain the next time round. Four hours of regret, with right effort. See if you can do this. We have a redeem and resolve. Okay, three times.
So the first line is dwell not in remorse, not on remorse. Dwell not in remorse. Now we go on to the next one, which is right mindfulness. We already talked about it yesterday, actually. So to review, there are four establishments of mindfulness. Usually in most suttas, it is defined as the four establishments of mindfulness. But I also pointed out the other day that there is one particular sutta in the Majjhima called the Chattarisaka Sutta, the Great Forty, I think it's 117, which says that right mindfulness means remembering right view. I talked about the three executives of the Noble Eightfold Path the other day, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. But in other suttas, right mindfulness is usually defined as the four establishments of mindfulness, which means contemplation of the body, or repeated observation of the body as body, of feelings as feelings, of mental states as mental states, and of dhammas as dhammas. And you're supposed to observe them repeatedly in the sense that body is just the body, it's not mine, not me, not myself, and so forth for the others as well. Right composure. I made a research when I was doing the Samatha and Vipassana Sutta Study with Meditation Workshop. And I found that there are four suttas which define right samadhi, or right composure, as one placement of mind supported by the seven factors of the noble evil path. And then you also have four other suttas which define right samadhi or right composure as the four jhanas. So to reconcile this apparent difference, one should say that if you have one placement of mind supported by the above seven factors, it should also be at the jhanic level. And if you have the jhana, then that jhana also must be supported by seven factors. If you understand jhana according to what the Visuddhimagga says, it is just simply absorption into an object. To get absorbed into an object, you don't need any of the seven factors. Not all of them. I mean, maybe a few, like the last three. Maybe you need effort and you need mindfulness. Not necessarily the four foundations of mindfulness, but you need mindfulness to remind yourself to stay with that object. You need mindfulness to learn the method of how to do that sort of absorption meditation. You have to recollect, you have to remind yourself. So you need mindfulness for that. You also need right effort in the sense that your effort must be directed towards this aim of getting absorbed. But you need not have all the others. So that's why in the yogic tradition, they also have absorption, but they have a different view. Their aim, it will be different from ours. So even if we have jhana, the way that Visuddhi Magga defines as absorption, it has to be supported by all the other seven factors in order to qualify as right samadhi. Otherwise, it is just samadhi. It's not right samadhi. So let's look at the jhanas. I'm telling you these jhanas not from the Visuddhi Magga's point of view, but from the suttas. From the suttas, there are many instances where the Buddha gave very, very vivid descriptions, very detailed descriptions of the experience of jhana. But interestingly, in none of these vivid and detailed explanations, 
Did the Buddha specify the object of the jhana? Was he doing focus awareness on metta? Or was he doing focus awareness on corpses? Or doing focus awareness on kasina? Or was he doing open awareness? It's not stated. The object of the jhana was never stated in any suttas. So it seems that the Buddha understood that jhana is not dependent on the object. It's dependent on the mental factors that accompanies that state. And so that's why in his descriptions, he talks a lot about what happens to the mind when one is in the jhanic state. The first one is, uh, this is the first jhana, is secluded from sensual desires. When one is in the first jhana, there are no thoughts about wanting to enjoy pleasures of the senses. And secluded from unwholesome states. Now, these unwholesome states does not refer to all the three roots of evil, which are great hatred and delusion. Probably only the first two, because there could still be delusion. Because jhana practice is not about wisdom, it's about samadhi. And the samadhi is all about stealing the mind, it's not about understanding how the mind works or understanding the true nature of sankharas. It's just about how to still and compose the mind, prevent the mind from getting distracted by thoughts, feelings, perceptions. It's secluded from unwholesome states in the sense of greed and hatred. There's no anger, there's no desire at the moment that one is in jhana. Before you get into jhana, there might be desire. After the jhana, once you have tasted jhana, there could be desire. You want it back. And that desire could be an obstruction because you wouldn't be able to get it back. You got there because there were no desires. Once you get it, you are attached to it, you want to recreate it, and with desire, you try to meditate, you won't get it. That happens to a lot of people. Not necessarily jhana, but any good meditative experience they have. When they got there, it was without any expectations. They just did and they got there. But after that, they had expectations. They want to go there, want to get back to the next sitting as quickly as possible and want to re-experience that. But that was done with greed, with expectation. And because of that, usually they cannot get it. Unless you are very calm and you really know, you don't expect, you just do and whatever happens is okay, then you will probably get it back. Thirdly, with initial and sustained thinking or application. This is in Pali, this is called Vitaka Vichara. And Vitaka is initial thinking or initial application. Vichara is sustained thinking or sustained application. When one is in the first jhana, it doesn't mean that there are no thoughts. There could still be thoughts, but these thoughts are not about sensual desires. These thoughts are not about sensual pleasures. These thoughts could be about practice. How do I keep my mind on this object? How can I prevent the mind from straying off? How do I balance my effort? These sort of thoughts might go into the mind. And you might also need to deliberately direct your mind to the meditation subject that you are working on. It's effortful. And this requires Vitaka Vichara. You need your effort to direct your mind to the subject and then you need effort also to maintain it there. So this can be interpreted as application. Initial application and sustained application of mind. 
when one gets into the jhana, we have these factors plus one more, then you will have intense interest in what you are doing there and happiness born of seclusion. Seclusion here means secluded from sensual desires. Because you are secluded from sensual desires, there is a freedom. Because having desires or pleasures of the senses is a bond that binds you and prevents you from going beyond sensual pleasures. So this experience of jhana is beyond sensual pleasures. So in order to get there, you have to be secluded from sensual pleasures to be able to get to this non-sensual pleasure. It's a pleasure that is not dependent on the five senses. This is a pleasure that comes out from mental activity. It doesn't matter whether you are doing focused awareness or you are doing open awareness. If these factors are present in you, then it means that you have jhana. First of all, if you find yourself in a state where you are not thinking of any sense pleasures, of wanting to enjoy any sense pleasures, you are just watching, you are just keeping track of what's happening at the senses. And initially it's effortful. You have to make sure that your mind doesn't stray off. It doesn't become boring anymore. It's interesting and it's peaceful and it's calm and it's happy. You feel happy and contented to be there. There might be an intense interest and rapture in what you are doing. So that is the first jhana. The second jhana, has gone beyond initial and sustained thinking or application. Which means, when you go to the second jhana, there are no more thoughts about how to practice. Now the mind is on auto mode. And you don't need to put in any directed effort or any sustained effort to keep the mind with the object that you are working on. Whether it's a focused attention like your breath, or whether it's open awareness like keeping track of what's happening at the senses. It goes on auto mode, and it is really free and easy touch and go. Because this is a time when there's no directed awareness at all. You just step back and just watch. Allow the mind to move around the senses without any thoughts about pleasures of the senses or about anything at all. Just awareness, no talk. So at that time, that is the second jhana. And then your mind becomes very clear. And there's oneness of mind in the sense that the mind is one, as I said. When you try to unify the mind, you put it in one place. And then the objects come to you instead of you going after the objects. Then the mind becomes unified and becomes extremely clear. That is the second jhana. And again, there is interest in happiness. This is born out of composure, out of the samadhi that you are developing now. The first one was born out of seclusion from desire for pleasures of the senses. That one has been overcome. So now you come to taste the sweetness of samadhi. And this is the interest in happiness born out of composure, out of samadhi. Let me go on to the third jhana. The third jhana here is becoming more equanimous. There's no more rapture, no more interest, no more deep interest. It's like it becomes normal. It's like sometimes you experience something for the first time. It's very novel. It's very novel to you. You feel very excited about it. 
After a few times experiencing the same thing, then there's no more novelty, no more excitement anymore. It's the same experience, but no more excitement. So it's the same thing. When you go to the third jhana, the mind becomes more stabilized, no more excitement. The first two got excitement. Excited to be in a new experience that you have never experienced before. That's why you become equanimous and you are mindful and clearly aware. You see, you notice that the Buddha uses same words in different contexts with different meanings. When we talk about mindfulness, I said there are four hours of mindfulness. When I talked about clear awareness, I talked about the bar test, B-A-R-R. When you are in this third jhana, there are no more thoughts. So you don't process things in terms of the bar test anymore. But you are clearly aware. Sampajanya, completely in various ways aware of what's happening. And you are mindful in the sense that there's an auto-reminder to continue with your meditation without falling back to the lower states. There's one more that I forgot. I think he's experiencing happiness with the body. Now this body is not the physical body because when you come to the third jhana, all bodily comfort, all bodily sensations, all bodily happiness is no longer felt. It ceases in the third jhana. So here the happiness is the mental body with your mind. I mean, it's a personally experiencing happiness. Experiencing mental happiness. Then we go on to the fourth jhana. The fourth jhana is, there's no more bodily or mental pain or pleasure. This one is mindfulness purified by equanimity. When you get to the fourth jhana, everything becomes very insipid. No more already. No more excitement, no more pleasure, no more pain. It's all totally equanimous. So this is the four jhanas. And remember that all of these must be supported by the seven factors of the noble eightfold path. In the suttas, there is the linear development of the noble eightfold path. This is mentioned in quite a few suttas. And here, instead of eight, there are Ten factors that are involved. Oh no, this is not. This is the next one. The other one has got ten factors. This one is just eight. We have Panya, Wisdom, Sila, Morality and Samadhi, what we saw just now. We start off with right view and then with right view that will lead to right thought. With right thought that will lead to right speech, to right action, to right livelihood, to right effort to write mindfulness and to write concentration. Oh yeah, there are ten altogether. Although it seems quite logical that with right view it will give rise to right thought, with right thought then it will give right speech and right speech will lead to right action and the right action will lead to right livelihood. But I cannot figure out how right livelihood can lead to right effort. But anyway, that's the way it is explained in the suttas. So from right livelihood, then you go to right effort, and from right effort, you go to right mindfulness and the right concentration or right composure. And then from there, you go on to right knowledge. And then finally, to right liberation. So this linear process 
is found in a few sutras. But I don't think it's so easy. I think that it's more complex. You need to go in feedback loops many times before you can actually reach liberation. And so this is my version. Again, you start off with right view. And as I said just now, right view here refers to the initial intellectual understanding. The information that you receive and make use of intelligence to put that information into practice. That is the right view. Then with this, then only can you have right effort and right mindfulness. As I said the other day, these three are the executives of the noble eightfold path. They will reinforce one another. If you have right view, you know you have the right view, but then you have no effort to apply it, then it doesn't work. You have learned about right view, but then you don't remember it, then how are you going to apply it? So these three are very important. You have to learn what is right view, then you have to remember it, and then you have to put in the effort to apply it. Now this will then lead to another feedback loop, and this is having right thoughts, Right thought will influence your speech, your actions, and your livelihood. So for most Buddhists, it will probably be this. If they don't start meditation, they will just be going around round here. And until maybe one time when somehow their time is ripe for them to start to learn how to meditate, then they will start to develop mindfulness, have right effort and right mindfulness, and then they will get right composure. With right composure then you'll be able to see things more clearly. And this will reinforce your mindfulness, and this will also reinforce all the other things inside there, inside that first feedback loop. And especially, it will reinforce right view. And this right view, the second type of right view, comes about through experiential verification. The first type is just intellectual understanding, acceptance intelligence to make use of that, to apply that. The second type of right view that comes out through the practice of the noble-eightful path is experiential right view. It is verified right view. It is no longer just intellectual knowledge. Then this will feed back to the first feedback loop and then you will update your understanding of things and things become more profound. Your faith would increase, then your determination to practice all the other path factors would even be better, consolidated, reinforced. So you go on doing this again and again, like all of you, you come for retreats every year, and every year you learn new things, you see deeper and deeper. And finally what will happen? You see, the first thing you need to do is to see things according to reality see things according to what has occurred. It's always about experiential. You know, looking at things that they have occurred, then you look at them, you understand them in terms of the three characteristics, in terms of cause and condition. When you see this enough, this will lead to weariness. Yeah, as I always say, the Buddhist path is like that. You have to look at the five aggregates, look at the six senses, look at them until you get really, really fed up. That is when you get wearied. When you get wearied, then you become detached. Otherwise, we are all caught up, all bound by 
the pleasures of the senses. So you have to go beyond that, then you become so wearied of them, then you become detached. And when you become detached, then you are liberated. So that's how the Buddhist path works. You have to contemplate all these in terms of Nichadukanata and see causing conditionality before you can get really wearied and detached and finally liberated. Okay? So I hope you understand this. Any questions? It's a bit complicated, but that's why I don't want to show you at the beginning. Show you at the beginning, it's oh, so difficult, how to do But now, you've already done everything. And now is the end, and I'm just showing you the theory behind the practice that you have been doing. Actually, you have been doing all these things. Haven't you? Alright, any questions? Clear enough, I think, because a lot of people here have been here many times. They've already seen this 